Having said that, as much as I love lists of names and numbers, if you recall uh, reading chapter 3, you'll know that that was one that we read all the way through. I have decided on this occasion to read some of the verses of chapter 7, provide an indication of some of the groups of names, uh, and then conclude in, in verse 73. So if you follow... Uh, here we go. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. And while the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpereth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Barna. And then there is the list of the men of Israel. I will allow you to lead that, read that list out loud uh, at your own leisure. In verse 26, it uh, goes on the, the men of Bethlehem and Nehataf. Uh, then we get a list from verse uh, 39 of the priests who returned. Then the Levites. Verse 44, the singers. And verse 45, the gatekeepers. Verse 46, a whole number of people, uh, the temple servants, followed by the descendants of the servants of Solomon. And then comes um, uh, a few uh, family groups who weren't able to show that they were descended from Israel. Uh, We get then, uh, in verse 66, the total number. Wonderful, isn't it? As well as the, the number of the people returning, we also have... The, the precise number of horses, mules, camels, and donkeys. There is an administrator in the midst um, when that was uh, happening, as well as quite a profound record of of giving uh, from verse 70 onwards. And verse 73, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. Now you might sometimes wonder why are passages of 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 the Bible there uh, like that? Why do we need to know that? Well, clearly we do need to know it because certainly from 6 onwards is more or less quoting uh, Ezra chapter 2. Uh, it's quoting uh, the, the, the record that was taken of all those who 90 years earlier had decided we are going with Zerubbabel, the first wave of exiles, we're going to return to really the wasteland that is Jerusalem, the city of God. And we've seen what's happened to Jerusalem in this first part of Nehemiah. And chapter 7 is slap bang in the middle of the book. Nehemiah is a book uh, very much of two halves, rather like football as the cliche goes, is a a game of two halves. Very, very profound. Um, What we've seen in the first half is the focus has been upon rebuilding the city wall surrounding Jerusalem. The temple has already been built, the altar has already been built, um, but the city is still a pile of rubble. Whilst there's a temple there, it's still not functioning as a proper city, a proper um, community where people can uh, can live their lives and settle down and do things God's way. And so uh, at the outset, for the first half, the focus has been on rebuilding, uh, rebuilding the walls. That's what God has 
uh, put in Nehemiah's heart. He, he says that in, in verse uh, 12 of chapter 2. Uh, he, he arrives in Jerusalem. I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Interesting phrase. We'll come back to that later. What God has put into my heart to do for uh, Jerusalem. He does share it a few verses uh, later on in verse 17. Um, where he tells the people, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. That's been the focus, this massive rebuilding project. Amazingly, they've now completed it in only 52 days. We've seen how the opposition in, in that half has been intense. And sometimes even the, the nature of the work has caused the, the strength of the laborers to waver, to almost uh, give way. It's been intense. But the people have persevered. Uh, they've put their back into it. They've stood shoulder to shoulder. They have overcome the opposition that has come their way. They've adapted to the challenges uh, that have been involved in these first few chapters. And they have completed the wall. And so the first half of the book of Nehemiah is complete. They have done well under Nehemiah's leadership. And they're about to head into uh, the second half. It's the same game. It's the same goal. It's the same overarching vision, but it's heading very much into a different phase. We get that impression from verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. Praise God for what has happened. Thank God uh, for the work of those sacrificial laborers who've, who've given up a more comfortable life, a more certain life. They've, they've gone and they've endured hardship and opposition and it's a testament to God's grace, God's favor upon them. All that has happened so far. Wonderful. And yet, There's still so much to be done. The walls are up, but the city is large and spacious. That's a way of saying the city is empty and has not yet been developed. This is not a place yet where um, normal community life can easily thrive. There may be a few houses, but basically the houses have not yet been rebuilt. It's like, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans in America. The levees broke. They were breached in any number of places. An almighty catastrophe hit that city. And the process of restoring it had to go about. And they could say, okay, well, we've, we've now repaired the levees, the, uh, the flood defenses. But clearly, there would be so much to be done uh, in terms of communities gathering there again. People uh, will have moved out of that city. The population of that city uh, obviously reduced dramatically as a result. And even years later was still significantly less than what it had been. It took some encouragement for people to come back into the city and repopulate it. That's what's going on right here. Nehemiah realizes this city needs to get repopulated. People need to be uh, drawn back in. So it's the same Vision, it's the same goal. God is about the same story. It's about rebuilding community. That's now how the the focus is changing. It's been a concern all the way through. But now the walls are done. It's seen in a fresh way. Right at the outset of the book, Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 2. What so grabbed Nehemiah's attention? What did he want to ask his brother Hanani about when he returned from Judah. He said, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile. The concern has always been for people. The concern has always been for this remnant. But the focus has been on rebuilding the walls. Now the walls have been rebuilt. The focus comes now in a more special and concerted way on Not just rebuilding the structures, not rebuilding the wall. That's now happened. But there is a community 
that needs rebuilding. And chapter 7 is the midpoint of the book. Gives us an opportunity for a half-time team talk. Um, Things so far have gone well. Um, But there's so much... Uh, there's so much ahead, so many things for us to remember as we head into what the second half entails for us as a church. It just so happens that we are almost precisely halfway through this slightly unusual sixth month period where we have two elders, but one and his family are in Canada, there for six months And uh, again, it's been going well for them. We look forward to discovering what God has got for Mark and Debbie and the family. We are halfway through that kind of six-month period. But what if that six-month period also in itself represents a kind of half-time? A kind of sense in which the vision will be the same. The overarching goal and purpose of God amongst us is the same. And we can look back over the past 15 years, many of us I suppose, and see all that God has done, all the foundations that have been laid, all the, the walls that have been built. But what if, as we kind of look beyond This half-time team talk. What if now the vision, which is not changing, City Church Sheffield, takes on a new focus at a new time? We look back, we give thanks. We've got this strategic moment. You know, when when a kind of manager gets the team together... I don't have a horrendous amount, you know, it's not a huge amount of time. They're kind of a few things just to spell out, right, as we head into the second half, um, the first half has gone well, particularly bearing in mind all the opposition that there has been and some of the challenges that have arisen. You know, there's time for a quick, another kind of well done, faithful, committed, united people. But here's what we need to bear in mind as we We head into the second half. There are a number of, if you like, just uh, words, headings that might come in a slightly uh, blunt or less polished way because it's a half-time team talk as we kind of then head into what God has got for us as we go on uh, from this point. Maybe as Ginny was just prophesying, there's an element to which I would like to join with uh, with Joshua. When the people have gathered, they have gone, they've been rescued from Egypt. They've gone through the wilderness. Joshua, relatively new to leadership overall, is gathering the people to say, we're going in. We're about to go in. And in Joshua 3, verse 5, Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. I'm aware that in just two weekends' time, not next weekend, but the weekend after, as Bless Anne was saying, as a community, uh, we are gathering together, not here in Sheffield, but at a conference centre a few miles down the M1. Something that we do uh, about every two years, we will be gathering together. You look in Nehemiah chapter 8, and all the people are about to gather together. Uh, Nehemiah is going to use the, the list of chapter 7 in order to gather people um, from different areas and different towns and different villages of Judah. They're going to gather together for a bit of a celebration. And God is going to be doing something Profound. When we get to chapter 8, we're going to see kind of God's agenda to grab people's attention and to shape them and to nourish them and to really have significant dealings with them then as they head, in, head into uh, the rest of God's 
plans and purposes. It's a significant time. We're about to come into a time where we're gathering together. A time for celebration. A time to be refreshed and nourished. A time when God wants to do significant things amongst us. What does Joshua say to the people? He says, consecrate yourself. This is significant. I would like to just say the same. Consecrate yourselves. Get right with God. Make sure that the the horse is pulling the cart and not the other way around. There's a tendency in so many ways where the the cart, we, we, we try and make the cart pull the horse. The horse is where the power is. The horse has the energy. The horse is pulling. There's an important load in the cart. The cart has precious cargo. The cart is important, but the cart mustn't be first. The horse must be first. What do I mean? You might wonder. (laughs) Firstly, worship matters. Worship is important. I love the, the verses that we've read here, how we discover what happens immediately when the walls are completed. After the wall had been rebuilt and I'd set the doors in place, uh, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. You what? I can understand kind of gatekeepers because they have a responsibility to, uh, to guard the city and its gates that have just been put in place. But he also made a point of appointing the singers. What's going on here? Well, perhaps there is some kind of intriguing job share going on. Um, uh, security personnel and singers shared the task of guarding the gates and draw, uh, welcoming people into the city, closing the gates at the right time. It's making the point, this community... This city, which is only right now getting re-established, there's so much more to be done. There's probably more rubble still to be shifted. There are still houses to be built. There's still community to be invested in. But right at the outset, this community is distinct and different from every other city, every other place under the sun. What characterizes this place in distinction to Babylon and Susa, and wherever else is, this place is founded. This place is all about worship. Worship was to be at the heart of this community, in the same way that the temple was at the heart of that city. There's just one temple, and it's absolutely huge. If you look uh, online, perhaps, at maps of Jerusalem at this point in its history, remembering that they kind of brought the walls in a bit, the city wasn't as large as it had been before, there is one huge almighty temple and a little bit more city that goes around the edge with some walls about it. This place is all about God and his glory. It's all about his presence. It's all for him. Unlike other cities, there weren't a huge number of different temples. There's just one. And it dominates the community. Right at the outset, worship and singing is significant. Even whilst there's so many other things to be done, worship is at the heart of it. It was right at the heart of God's plan right from the very start. When he uh, sent Moses to go and speak to um, speak to Pharaoh, he went with this message in Exodus 8 verse 1, let my people go so that they may worship me. It wasn't kind of, he wasn't looking for some excuse. This is what I'll say. This is how I will justify um, uh, the request or the command to let my people go. I've really got other things in store. 
But I'll say that for now. Or this is what will be involved at the outset, but then obviously other things will be involved. No, let my people go so that they will worship me. And we get to uh, Exodus chapter 15, and we see having been rescued and delivered from Egypt, there is just a, a scene of unrestrained, ecstatic praise and worship as Moses leads the people in singing. They are a people who have been redeemed and therefore they sing. It was right there at the beginning of their history. It's right there at the end of all things in Revelation, which we've looked at uh, some months ago now. But in Revelation uh, chapter 19, we get the, the another, just uh, one of numerous outbursts of praise. Hallelujah. Salvation. I think that's this one. Salvation belongs to our God. What a wonderful God. It's This community exists to worship Him. Our reason for existence is to worship God. We were made to be in relationship with Him. Worship is not a formality or a preliminary. It's not just what we kind of begin with. It's what we were made for. It's what we were all about. Jerusalem was one big empty space. There was so much to do. Houses to rebuild. So much to develop. It needed repopulating. Loads of challenges yet to come. But Nehemiah is making a statement. Worship was always to be at the heart of this community. I think worship, worshipping God, challenges our ideas of what is productive and what is a good use of time. Think well, we'll worship for a little while, uh, but then we really need to cut to the business. And so I kind of wonder if sometimes our approach to God, we kind of see worship as the social equivalent of doing small talk with God. It's kind of like saying, well, you know, what's the appropriate thing? Before you cut to the chase, it's maybe just a few words to say, it's just so nice to see you. How are you? You look really good today. Right, now, why I'm having this conversation is, can we just get down to business, please? Uh, We kind of go through uh, pleasantries. Now, that's entirely appropriate. We're not worshipping each other. We're just um, being friendly. But we can kind of approach or think of worship in that way. Just It's something to get through so that we then do the important stuff. And that important stuff will be uh, looking at the word or it will be praying together. There's, uh, uh, there's other things. There's uh, going out to, to witness to friends uh, and family, colleagues and neighbours. Um, well, that is important stuff. But worship is at the heart. Worship is why we are here. As we head into the second half, let's keep our eyes fixed on God. Sometimes we can see the work that needs to be done. Sometimes we can be looking in the carts, if you like, at the important cargo that we, that we forget or downgrade that we're called to be a people of, who worship God. And we can, we can kind of be aware of the work or the issues or the problems or the kind of business of church life, of community life, of work, of whatever's going on. And that becomes the focus. And that we try and kind of make that what drives life and, and kind of tack worship on after it. When I get a moment, when I get some time, Lord, you're looking wonderful today. Uh, um, uh, thank you so much. And Lord, here's all my anxieties. Yes, we're called to to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. But let's ensure that we're doing that in an, in an attitude of faith and joy and just a sense of, just the privilege again of being God's people, that singing just emerges, that we, that we enjoy worshipping him, that we are giving our time, giving our life to his glory. Worship matters. It's not the only thing that matters, but it does matter. Worship matters also. What do we need to see in the halftime team talk is character matters. 
Now, we've probably looked at this already in a previous message, but just to highlight again that uh, Nehemiah in verse 2 looks to appoint certain people into areas of, of responsibility, uh, putting them in charge of Jerusalem. First of all, his brother uh, Hanani, and along with him, uh, Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. And we get this, uh, this reason why. Because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. Nehemiah knew, unfortunately, he was well aware of how so-called friends could become foes. Uh, The loyalty of some gifted people within the community could actually be bought at a price. And so in the first half, he's come across people in the community with with divided, uh, divided loyalties. Worshipping God or perhaps actually when it comes to it, worshipping money. That's the, that's the main thing here. I, I need to make sure that my business is doing well and therefore I'm, I'm kind of uh, holding others to ransom as it were. Because money is my main loyalty. But I'm kind of worshipping God. He's come across that. He's come across people who appear to be uh, building with them. Building the church. Building the community. Or maybe actually they're fraternising with uh, the enemy, giving their loyalty uh, to those guys, Sambalat and Tobiah and the others. Obviously, Nehemiah would need people working with him who were competent, who were able, who were up for the task, who could bear the responsibility of leading a whole community of people and what would be uh, involved. But Nehemiah placed the priority Slap bang on character. He looked for a guy who was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. Some suggest that Hananiah was described in this way because actually some would have doubted his capabilities. Was he really up for it? But Nehemiah has taken time to observe his character and that mattered most. D.A. Carson has uh, referred to this matter of integrity or being a trustworthy, reliable sort of a person in this way. It says, it's about being in public what we are in private. It's easy to say. It's kind of easy to agree with. We might be aware of instances in national life politicians, or even um, in Christian circles of people who have appeared to be the very real deal in public, smooth, capable, maybe spiritually anointed, God's at work, but there's been a mismatch and sometimes in, 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 in political life or in, in, uh, in a nation as a whole, it's almost a thought that actually, well, what's going on in public doesn't matter. As long as I am capable to do the job at hand, uh, it doesn't matter what's going on in my private life. So just leave me alone. And the media hound and all the rest of it, which maybe isn't that helpful. But Nehemiah is saying, no, what's happening, who somebody is in private, it matters. He's going to look for someone who's trustworthy in that rather than just being um, having his attention directed only to uh, what their competence is or their capabilities is. Are they up for the task? Well, there's, uh, there's a place for that. It's important to consider it. But where's this person's, where's this person's character? Now, it's been a challenging time. It's been a tough first half. What happens uh, when the heat is on? I'll tell you something that sometimes happens in my household, which doesn't kind of, I'm not thrilled to share it, but in perhaps what this unusual period of time is involved for us, I'll tell you what's involved for me. When life gets busy, dad gets grumpy, is what sometimes Happens. I'm not sharing that for a gag. I'm, I'm sharing that because my heart, and I think what God has been directing my attention to 
personally is, yeah, it's important to prepare to preach. It's important to prepare for a prayer meeting. It's important to kind of be considering the stuff that we are doing as a church. But I've got to be considering my character. I've got to be investing there. I've got to make sure that there isn't some massive mismatch. I know how to pray out loud and for other people to go, yeah, and amen. But what's going on when the door is closed? Um, I was just looking earlier on at a, a scripture where uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in Matthew. In one of the early chapters, he's talking about prayer. And Matthew 6 and verse 5, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they have to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. Now, I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will uh, reward you. There is that possibility, there is that tendency perhaps in any human heart to become like those Pharisees or hypocrites who kind of enjoyed doing the stuff in public. Um, but what was going on in private didn't quite match up. This is just my half-time pep talk. This matters. This is important. Um, I'd love to give you uh, more anecdotes and illustrations and all the rest of it, but this is just blunt. Worship matters. Character matters. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things. We want to seek God for what shape he wants us to have, what those amazing things might be. Um, discovering and seeing unleashed uh, more of the supernatural uh, gifting and anointing that he's placed on all of us ordinary people to play an important part in his kingdom. So as we go out into the second half, what's going on in private? What's going on behind closed doors? What's going on when the pressure is on in your workplace? What do the family experience when you get home? There, supporting you, others supporting you. Are you, are you nurturing them? Are you blessing them? Or is there the danger of a mismatch where the importance of the responsibilities that I hold is a burden that other people are having to bear? It's a place now. This is an important time. Consecrate yourselves because God is going to do amazing things. Because God is going to do amazing things, it's an important time in this little half-time team talk, in this little kind of 15-minute window. Well, it's a bit longer than that, isn't it? It's not quite a gate. In this little moment, let's take stock. Where is my character? How am I investing in that? And this is not to condemn, but it perhaps is to challenge. Am I closing the door? Am I at a time and a place that is helpful and conducive to me? Am I getting before my heavenly Father? Am I looking to Him? Integrity, trustworthiness, one way or another, that is a challenge for all of us. See how it's also linked to the fear of God and being reverent. Fearing God is perhaps holding God's opinion in higher regard than anybody else's. Being more concerned with God's assessment than anybody else's. Doing things then in a humble desire to please him. 
rather than necessarily uh, others. It puts the small and seemingly insignificant parts of life actually at center stage. It's not all just about the high profile moments. It's about the quiet moments. It's about seemingly less significant time. It's about having breakfast and not being grumpy. It's about getting the kids ready for bed and not being grumpy. It's about enjoying God, pursuing Him, and seeking to be and grow in matters of integrity. Yet, Hananiah feared God more than most men. It wasn't like there was no progress to be had. It wasn't like he was a complete perfect model. No, it was more than most. And therefore, Nehemiah is like, I know I can entrust stuff to you, because I know that in private you are the same as you are in public. That's the heart of the matter. Here's just a couple other things. I've called this devotion. Devotion matters. It's a bit overlapped. Um, forgive me if it doesn't really sum it up. But um, Nehemiah says this, My God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and officials and the common people. We're going to look at what happens. We're going to look at particularly, well, what did God put on his heart to gather people According to this big list of the exiles who had returned uh, 90 years earlier. So, okay, well, if you can trace your ancestry to these people who previously 90 years ago um, returned. Right, gather. We're going to meet together in Jerusalem. We're going to hear the word of God. We're going to celebrate. We're going to repent. God's going to be at work. It's really important that we gather. And so he's gathering all those people. But notice this, just that phrase. God put it on my Heart. Again, it's kind of the, the horse and the cart. God's activity. What we've seen and what we've caught glimpses of time and time again through this book is the impressive nature of Nehemiah's own personal devotion to God. Again, when the heat is on, when the pressure is there, when the problems surface, he turns to God. When he hears bad news, he, he turns to God. Now, at this kind of half-time point when, wow, the, the, the work on the wall has been completed, kind of get the impression, well, what does Nehemiah do? He doesn't rest on his laurels. What does he do? He, he just he is before God. He is living his life before God and with God, walking with him, worshipping him, investing yeah, and developing his own character as he follows God. This is God's thing. This is God's vision. This is God's plan. And sometimes when we hear God, when we get a sense of what God's purpose is, we start to just kind of take it as, well, this is this has now become my thing. It's become my vision. It's become my story. These are my ideas. They are my plans. And they are my desires. And, oh, Lord, would you mind joining with me in what I have already planned and purposed to do is a good idea. Lord, why don't you come and follow me, actually? I'm about a great work, don't you know? And I, I'm pretty sure that you could be helpful uh, to the way in which I see things. Uh, it's always possible for the cart and the horse to get swapped over. Nehemiah could just be concerned with the load to carry, the cargo to shift, the stuff to be done, the task ahead. And it suddenly, it no longer becomes about devotion to God. Do we invite, do we invite God to join in with what we are doing? Or do we remember that He has invited us into what He is doing? Sometimes the Christian life can be put in those terms. Invite Jesus into your life. You have a life. It's going quite well or it's okay. It could be better if you invite Jesus into it. Jesus, why don't you come and follow me? Here are my aspirations. Here are my desires. Here are my ambitions. Here are my plans. And I'm sure I could be a more fulfilled person. I could realize my potential a little bit more with your help. So come, Lord Jesus, into my 
life, then other decisions can be kind of almost framed in that way. It's God's help to me rather than seeing, no, when Jesus began his ministry, he saw people and he said, you come and follow me. I am about a great work. God is about a great thing. All of history is, again as the cliche goes, his story. And so what God does is doesn't, he just, he's not just come into my life. What he says is, you come into mine. Come into my story. See like the, the big picture of what I am doing. Reading through that list of interesting names and numbers, it's a record of people who 90 years ago had made the same sort of decision as Nehemiah. I'm leaving my life. I'm actually leaving the comf- well, perhaps comfortable, civilized situation in which I conduct my life. I'm, we're going to leave the business that we have established here. We're going to leave the, the connections and the relationships that we have developed. We are seeing that God has a bigger thing in store for us than always just being comfortable captives in a foreign land. Now, maybe there were aspects to which it wasn't comfortable. We've seen the life of Nehemiah. He'd become, he'd become the cupbearer to the emperor. I think that would have involved some comfort. I think that would have involved some prestige and honor. But he was prepared to set all of that down and say, no, I've seen something bigger. I've seen something more important. I've seen something less comfortable, less glamorous and hard work. But that's what I'm committing myself to. I'm committing myself to the plans and purposes of God. So I'm going back to Jerusalem. Here is a list of about 50,000 people and their donkeys Who'd all made the decision? Well, I guess the donkeys didn't make the decision. But we're leaving. We've seen something more important. Well, what had they seen? When they got there, what did they see? They saw a city which was desolate and ruined. But they had their eyes fixed on something else. Like Abraham had his eyes fixed on a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. He was called on a journey. These people were called on a journey. What did they see? Well, with their eyes, they saw something that was pretty drab. It was a lot of work. And, but what they also saw, they remembered, this place is the city of God. There are amazing stories about what's happened in this city. But not only that, we're looking forward to what will one day be again. We're going to return. We're going to help to rebuild it. To be honest, what we're going to do is live our life. We're going to settle down in this place. We're going to do business. We're going to have a family. We're going to live an ordinary life, but we're part of a bigger picture and what God is doing. And so perhaps the words of Jeremiah would... Um, were helpful. Jeremiah, verse 33. No, chapter 33 and verse 10. This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste, without men or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither men nor animals, there will be heard once more the sound of joy and gladness. The voices of bride and bridegroom. And the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Saying, give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. What do you see with your eyes? This is a desolate place. This hasn't been rebuilt yet. There's so much more uh, to be done. Okay, but now just look again. Here again, I got massive plans for this place. I got massive plans for this community. What has God laid on Nehemiah's heart? I want to repopulate this city. The walls are up, but no one's really living here. He sets about a plan 
to see people actually living in the city. Greater opportunities and greater comfort was elsewhere. But they were coming in. They were going to plant their two feet and build their house and play their part in this community. Maybe for you, greater opportunity, maybe even greater wealth, greater comfort could lie outside of Sheffield. But you have, or perhaps God is stirring you to, put your flag in the ground and say, this is where I am. Maybe God will move me one day. But right here, in the here and now, I'm I'm laying my life down here. We're settling here. We're going to live life here. We're going to build community here. I'm going to play my ordinary part in an ordinary church in an ordinary city. But because I'm believing in extraordinary things that are to come. Perhaps for some, God will be directing you in a different way. Perhaps Sheffield is the comfortable place where you've got connections and you're rooted in and uh, life is more certain within the boundaries of this city and this church. But there could be a time coming when God is going to say, I'm actually calling you to go. And there's going to be sacrifice involved. You're not going to be earning as much money. Uh, you're not going to be in such a big community of believers. You're going to be a new person in a new place, making new friendships, getting used to a new culture. But I'm calling you to go. If God says go, that is the thing to be done. Sacrifice involved, but devotion matters. It's not just a case of, this is what I want, God. Please back me up. But, oh God, what do you want? What what are you saying is important right now? Lastly, what matters is people. People matter. Nehemiah is assembling the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. We've mentioned already, Nehemiah wants to see, because God wants to see, this city repopulated. The first phase, Nehemiah needed people for the walls. The focus was the walls going up. In the second half, the walls that are now established are there for the people. It's a subtle but definite shift. The focus is on is on people. In a sense, it's always been the focus, but now in a new way. Now that the walls are up. Church life can become uh, reduced in our thinking to a collection of projects, programs, preaching, prayer meetings, and practicalities, and other things beside. They are important. They have their place. But they are, again, the cart What's important that is something else is is pulling that. Some, something else is the focus. People are important, not just as the resource to support the activities that we have, not just the manpower to help us achieve uh, what we want to in whatever we might be leading. All these things, programs, projects, preaching prayer meetings, practicalities, and other stuff besides are a means to an end, not the end in themselves. And that end is supporting and encouraging and reaching out to people. It's a time of transition. This is just a half-time team talk. I wonder what the second half has uh, in store, whatever it has in store, let's ensure that at the heart of who we are and what we do is 
an ongoing desire to put God first in worship, to put character first in what's going on in life, to devote ourselves to God where in faith we're following his lead, the doors that he opens up. And perhaps with a subtle or slight shift. There might be ways in which we continue to work on the walls and develop the structures and tweak things here and there in regard to who knows what projects or preaching. They're important, but what is this really about? What are we really about? Or yes, worshipping God, loving God, but loving people. It's not a new message. It's not a new vision. Loving one another, supporting one another, and reaching out to people. God has spoken to us as a church about being turned inside out. I think that is what this half-time moment is about. It's the same vision with the same people, with the same heart, but somehow it's being turned inside out, nothing being lost, but a new focus coming. Let's consecrate ourselves because tomorrow the Lord is going to do amazing things among us. Please don't just think that having a weekend away in two weekends time is just some human scheme, is just some idea for having a bit of a jolly for a celebration. It is. It's a great opportunity to be together. We have done it before. No doubt in the future we will do it again. But I think God has put it upon our hearts to gather at that time. Let's gather with expectation. Let's gather with faith. Let's gather to worship and celebrate before then. Let's personally just put our own character under the spotlight oh god is there anything that i'm just shelving disregarding overlooking because of the greatness of the work that i'm about is there something i need to make some changes with are there some stuff i need to repent of am i devoted to god am i devoted to my ideas am i following him Or is it kind of more of a case of I'm wanting him to follow me? Now's an opportunity to take stock because God wants to have profound dealings with us as he leads us into the second half. The second half of just the next six months or the next 15 years? Let's see what God has in store and let's pray.